Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I feel sort of mixed today. I feel like I'm not at one of those restaurants where you order off the menu, but you got sort of a buffet and you can take a little bit of whatever you want. So this morning I want to share something with you that I thought was really interesting. Uh, some time ago, it was probably a month or two ago, we were down in Cincinnati area and we went to the Creation Museum. And I found it very interesting. It was a, a really relaxing time. We went over and saw a replica of Noah's Ark and it was just, a, they call it the Ark Encounter. And, but while I was at the Creation Museum, I came across a book that had the genealogies in it, a timeline, actually, from Adam all the way through the scripture, all the way to the end. And it was unique because the, the book stood, if I put it on the floor, probably about this tall. And when you fold it out, it's about 20 feet long, and it's all laminated, and it's all folded together. It's really comprehensive. And I, I started to look at that, and I, I followed the timelines of some of the people like Abraham and Shem and Noah and Methuselah. And I began to see some things that I, I'd never really put together. And so I want to talk about a couple things that I saw, and then I want to get into the word this morning. I'm going to start by saying that if you were to open your Bible to like Joshua, the 10th chapter, in Scripture, there's a, a book that's referenced twice. It's, also, it's called the book of um, Jasher or also called the book of the just. And it's referred to twice in Scripture. One's in John 10, 12 through 13, and I'm going to read the verse. I think I, you might have it up there, John 10, 12 through 13. On the day the Lord gave, Amorites, gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun stands still over Gideon, Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jasher, or as sometimes it's called the book of the just, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Well, that's one reference to it. The second reference to that book is found in 2 Samuel, the first chapter, verse 18. And I'm actually going to go down to, I forget what verse it is, it's between verse 18 and 27. It says, and he ordered the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bull. It is written in the book of Jasher. And again, I'll also use the other name that is referred to it as by as the book of the just. I, I went on the internet and I, I tried to find out as much information as I could uh, about this book. I know there's a couple editions that, that have been published but the book is said to be found roughly about the time of the, that the Romans conquered Jerusalem. It was found during that siege and taken by some Jews from the city. 
And so it was preserved and somehow passed on from generation to generation. So here's the question I, I pose to the answer man. What is the book of Jasher, Jasher and should it be in the Bible? <clears throat> and this is the answer that I came up with. I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Also known as the book of the upright one in the Greek Septuagint and the book of the just ones in the Latin Vulgate, the book of Jasher was probably a collection or compilation of ancient Hebrew songs and poems praising the heroes of Israel and their exploits in battle. Again, the book of Jasher is mentioned in Joshua 10, when the Lord stopped the sun and in the middle of the day during the battle of Beth Horan. It's also mentioned in 2 Samuel 1, 18-27, as containing the song or lament of the bull. Now, <clears throat> I'm, just, I'm not trying to, this morning, tell you that this is an inspired book. I, I, it's no different to me than the book of Josephus. Josephus, for instance, was a Jewish historian that lived at the time of Christ. And oftentimes we refer back to his writings, even though he wasn't a Christian, because he was an historian. He verifies some of the things that were written in Scripture because he was there to record it. So this morning, <clears throat> I want to go back, and I'm, not going, to, I'm going to take the Scripture in relationship to the book of Jasher, and I, I want to show you something that goes right along with Scripture. It doesn't contradict the Scripture at all. But few people have ever stopped to consider that Noah and Abraham and even Shem and Nimrod were all contemporaries. Freaks you out, doesn't it? How could that be? Noah, a contemporary with Abraham, Shem and Nimrod, all living at the same time? But as you go back and look at the scripture and you go through the genealogies, how many of you like are going to go home this afternoon, maybe before you take your nap, and read the genealogies in First and Second Chronicles? I know everybody just loves to read those. <clears throat> and so because you don't read them, you miss some of the, the important things that would help you to understand how we could know so much about the flood. You want this will blow your mind. If I go back to Adam, and I go all the way to Abraham, now they lived a long time in those days. Matter of fact, Noah lived 900 and some years old. Methuselah was 969. Shem lived to be 500, almost 500 years old. So if we take some of the lives from like Adam to Methuselah to Shem, we make it all the way to Abraham. Three different people span Almost, how many years is that? Almost 2,000 years. So, because people say, well, how do you know about the flood? How do you know it's true? It's a myth. Well, hey, listen, we got the people that were there all the way up to the time of Abraham. Nobody has a problem believing that Abraham lived. Well, Noah and Shem, and I'm going to show you in Scripture, both were alive. Matter of fact, Shem outlived Abraham, go back, I'm, I'm challenging you, go back. Shem lived 40-some, let me go back to my notes so I don't give you the wrong number. 
And he, in the book of Joshua, it's, it reveals that Noah and Abraham not only knew one another, but Abram lived with Noah and Shem for 39 years. Have you ever wondered how Abraham was able to maintain the one God message when he was taken out of Ur of the Chaldees and then the name of God was protected and the oneness of God was preserved? Where did he learn it from? There was a man in Genesis, the sixth chapter, he was a preacher of righteousness, Noah. And when you look at the facts that Noah was a contemporary with Abram and Haran, you could probably see that. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. And he lived 950 years. So Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And that's found in Genesis, the seventh chapter, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that, that day all the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. That's in Genesis 7 and 11. Now I jump to Genesis, the ninth chapter, verse 28 and 29. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's in your scripture. Now, from the birth of, boy, this guy's name is the son of Shem, I believe, Arphaxad, two years after the flood until the birth of Abraham, it was 292 years. From the birth of, I'll say it again, Arphaxal, and that was the son of Shem. From, and he was born two years after the flood until, let me read it again so I don't mess up. From the birth of Arphaxad, two years after the flood until the birth of Abraham, it was 292 years. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, and Shem lived 500 years. Abraham's li Abram's life overlapped Noah's life by 58 years, and Shem's by 208 years. Let me ask you a question. This, this, this stuff, I have, I'm very inquisitive about how can this be? How can a person live to be 1,000 years old? It just blows my mind. I, I'm 64, I'd just be a kid. I have a sense of humor, all right? You know I do. I thought if, if you live to be a thousand years old and we, we mimic the lifespan that we have, how long are you nursed? <laughs> you know, it's like, and I, 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 you know, and I talk, I, I drive in the car and I say, God, I don't understand this. You're going to help me to understand. You know, this is, people have questions like this. I can't imagine living a thousand. I'm 64 and this thing's falling apart that I call a body. But uh, there's different theories to that. Some people believe that the atmosphere was different at the time of the flood. It was thicker. There was never any rain. But after the flood, it dissipated and all of a sudden, the rays of the sun, which caused us to age, started to decrease the age of man. 
Well, scientifically, you could try to say that, but is it possible that God can speed the process of growth or retard it? I, was, I, was, uh, I went to church when I was in Kentucky, and I asked the pastor, he lived right in the same town as the Creation Museum was. And Christians drive from all over the country to see the Creation Museum, and he lived about eight miles from it. And I said, well, have you been there? He said, no. I live right here, but I've never went. And I, I thought that was strange. Like, I just drove 400 miles to come here, and you live eight miles, and you never went? But later in a conversation, he said, that's ridiculous. That's just stupid creation to think that the world was created in six days. This earth is worth is older than, it's millions of years old. See, what, what he's doing is he's trying to do the same thing as the scientific community, trying to fit everything into the pattern of what we experience in our generation. And so he just, when he said that, I thought, wow. I, and then I started to look at creation, and again, I'm just sitting down here. I, I love watching nature films. I really do. Documentaries, I could watch them watching how that little caterpillar goes through the metamorphosis and he comes out a completely different creature in three weeks. Three weeks. He's, he went from a caterpillar that crawled and he resembles something completely different in three weeks. Well, some people say, well, in evolution, it takes millions of years for that to happen. <laughs> Can I just talk? I'm having fun I, I was at the food pantry one day, and um, one of our pantry people, I won't mention your name, Sister Marb. <laughs> I heard her talking to one of the patrons there, and they were talking about creation. And I, that's nothing new. We, we talk to our patrons, you know, our, our, our guests, and but she started to talk about, I got an ear cocked, and she's saying, well, I believe we all came from fish. Fish grew legs, and fish walked out of the water, and they eventually turned into what we are. I couldn't take it. I went over, and I said, I got another theory. I believe all the dogs and cats and animals came from their specific planets by spaceship. Dogs came from a dog planet and cats from a cat planet. They all came here. And she said, that is utterly ridiculous. And I said, isn't it? But why is it so hard for us to believe that God can slow the span of man's aging or speed it up? I, I went for a ride the first time I was able to put the top down on my convertible the other day. It was really nice. And I'm driving through the fields, and I was looking. There's nothing in the fields yet. But in a few months, there are going to be stalks of corn that are probably almost nine feet tall. And they'll, they'll plant them in another, as soon as it dries up, probably in July. They'll plant those little seeds, and in a month or two, They'll, from nothing, they'll grow into something that's taller than you and I. 
I've heard it said, and I, I've been around farmers for a while, and I, I kind of agree with it, that the process of growth with corn, if the environment is right, with the heat right, you can almost sit, put a lawn chair outside the cornfield, and hear the stalks grow. Right? I've heard that, and I've tried it, and it seems like I hear something, but it's, it could be true. So why is it so hard for us to understand that God can speed the process of growth or retard it? So I believe that these people really lived to be 969 years old. <clears throat> now, what other support do I have? <clears throat> well, let me go back. And this is from the book of Jasher, okay? And it came to pass in those days in the 110th year of the life of Isaac, <clears throat> that is in the 50th year of the life of Jacob, in that year died Shem, the son of Noah. Shem was 600 years old at his death. It, there's a little contradiction sometimes between five and 600, depending on where you leave. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot our Arphaxad, two years after the flood. After he begat Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years. That's probably where I got the 500 years, and begot sons and daughters. Now, I'm going to go through this. Just bear with me. There's only seven genealogies here, but this is to show you that this is recorded. Our facts had lived 35 years and begat Salah. And Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. Eber lived 34 years and begat Peleg. Peleg lived 30 years and begat Ru. Ru lived 32 years and begat Surag. Surag lived 30 years and begat Nahor. Nahor lived 29 years. Now, now you're, the names are getting familiar now, aren't they? Nahor lived 29 years and begat Terah. Terah lived 70 years and begat Abraham. Nahor, and Haran. I said all that to say this. Noah was Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather. Kind of neat, isn't it? Did they know each other? And like I said before, where would have Abraham learned Yahweh's statutes and judgments? And I want to read one last thing from uh, the book of Jasher. It says in the ninth chapter, Haran, Abraham's oldest brother, was 42 years old when he begat Sarai, which was in the 10th year of the life of Abram. And in those days, Abram and his mother and nurse went out of the cave as the king and his subjects had forgotten the affair of Abram. That's a story in itself. That's a really interesting story I'd like to talk on sometime about the birth of Abram. And when Abraham, because they sought to take his life as a child, that's coming from the book of Jasher too. And when Abraham came out from the cave, he went to Noah and his son Shem, and he remained with them to learn the instruction of the Elohim and his ways. And no man knew where Abram was, and Abram served Noah and Shem, his son, for a long time. Abram was in Noah's house 39 years, and Abram knew Jehovah from three years old, and he went in the ways of Jehovah until the days of his death as Noah and his son, son Shem had taught. So I want to stop there. I'm not going to go any further in that topic. But isn't it amazing 
when, how many of you actually realized that they were contemporaries? Well, I wouldn't have talked about this unless I was sure about the ages, because I know somebody's got their computer out and they're looking online right now. But um, what we believe in is not a fable at all. And God has made, a, made provision for uh, knowledge to be passed on from generation to generation. Now I want to get into something a little different. That was sort of the salad bar. In Isaiah, well, let me go back to Luke, the 10th chapter first. I want to read from verse 25 in Luke, the 10th chapter. There's a guy, he's a lawyer, he's going to stand up and test Christ. He's trying to justify himself that he's all right which seems to signify that his conscience is bothering him. When you have to justify yourself, there's usually something that's causing you unrest inside. And it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, okay, give you a story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and stri who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I believe that this, this story is perfectly set up to bring in characters that are present in, in this discourse. The first one is a priest, and he sees the man in need, but he has a conference to go to, and he doesn't have time to spare. I added that. So he walked around, along on the other side, pretending not to notice the need. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. He saw the need. This guy was uh, desperately in need of someone to stop and give him help. He couldn't take care of himself. But he had to go to work. So he walked around this thing, this situation that God had placed in his life and ignored it. But a certain Samaritan, uh-oh, these guys weren't really popular in the times of Christ because they weren't truly Jewish. They were Jewish and Gentile, a mix. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
Well, I would say that the first guy, the, the priest and the Levite, had sympathy for the man. They might have even had a little empathy. But the man that stopped to do something about the situation is a man that had compassion. And so this morning when I, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I come across the situation and I'm trying to respond to it, at what level of care am I operating? God had compassion on humanity. He robed himself in flesh and he died on the cross for your sin. He had compassion. He didn't ignore your situation. He didn't empathize with it. He certainly didn't say, well, I'm sorry you're in that situation. So the Samaritan operated at the same level that God would have operated at with compassion. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So not only did he give him a ride on something that he could have rode, he inconvenienced himself to help the need of another. Let that sink in a little bit. In other words, this story that Jesus is saying to this, this lawyer is, if you're really wanting to fulfill God's commission, don't ignore things that I put in your path. Allow yourself to be inconvenienced and time to be taken from your busy schedule because this is how people will know that you love me and that you're following my commandments. And he asked someone, he said, which of these do you think was the neighbor of, to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And then he said to him, go and do likewise. Now that's a principle that we don't talk about a lot in church anymore. Initially, the church was a service industry. The bride of Christ was a service industry. For instance, in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, you see a man named Stephen. He was chosen to do what? What was his ministry? To do nothing more than to serve the tables of the widows and those that were in need. That was part of the service industry. Even after the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, if any man saw that they had need, they sold what they had and they gave it to those that were in need. Because this was service industry. I was reading in my devotion the other day, I, I love my devotional book, and uh, it talked about, I'm, I'm going to come back to this, by the way, about the marriage tradition in the times of scriptural Bible times, about how the groom came to the house of the bride's parents and they consummated the marriage, but then after that was consummated, in other words, the oaths were taken, the vows were taken, 
he went back to prepare a place for his bride who he was going to come back and receive to himself at a latter time. Now, I want to look at it from the bride's perspective. The bride has already made a commitment to the groom. She realizes that everything around her that has been familiar to her her whole life is no longer important anymore because she's not going to live in the house when the bridegroom comes. Her bedroom, the, the living room of whatever the, the, their, their house was like, lost an attraction that it had before the consummation of the marriage because it was no longer her home. When I become part of the bride of Christ and I make the commitment and make the vows to serve Christ and I am buried in his name through baptism and take upon my, my life his name, all my, my, this earth, this world that I'm living in is just a place of waiting. It's not, it's not my home anymore. I'm already married to the bridegroom and he's just preparing a place for me to, to go to be with him. That's why the Bible says stop loving the world. Because this world is not the place of our residence. It's not our home anymore. And so I wonder sometimes people that, that get saved and are still totally lo in love with the world and the routines of life and never change have ever realized the importance of the commitment that they made to the groom. Don't become entangled with something that's not yours. We go back to Isaiah, the 58th chapter. I was reading this uh, on uh, the morning that we had our... Um, our mail, our food drive with the postal carriers. I just reading it before we left that morning, and I thought, wow, is this great? It, it seems to support the sacrifices that we make. It says in Isaiah 58, 1, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. Stop. They seek him daily. They pray. They fast. But they don't know what's wrong. They delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They act like they haven't forsaken me. <clears throat> they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take Take delight in approaching God. Sounds good, doesn't it? Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Look at us. We pray, we delight in you. How come we fast and you don't respond to our fasting? Have we, why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? I fasted three days, Lord. Why haven't you taken notice? Or, or God, look what I do. I come to church. I do all these things. How come you're not responding to me? 
In fact, on the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day. In other words, he's saying, I'm changing your view of what you're doing. I don't want you to do what you've been doing. I want you to change and do something that supports the mission of my people. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? An acceptable day of the Lord? That's a question mark. Then he says, let me tell you about the fast that I want you to participate in. Is not the fast that I have chosen? You chose that other fast. But this is the fast that I've chosen. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. Now I want you to think about what we just read in Luke the 10th chapter. Where Jesus gave the illustration of the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. Which one was following God's command. This is the fast I've chosen. To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Oh, that wasn't in the previous fast. Matter of fact, even in the Corinthian church, Paul rebuked them because when they came together to do the Passover meal, Everybody was a party to them. They all focused on themselves. And there were people that came in that had nothing to eat. And they had, others had plenty. And he rebuked them because of their selfishness. It's not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. In other words, bring in those that have no shelter and bring them into a place of shelter and provision. That sounds pretty much like what the Samaritan did. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Do you remember, I believe it's in Matthew, the seventh chapter. This is, it fits into Luke, the 10th chapter in Isaiah 58 where he talks about those that, that were going to come into heaven. I was hungry, and you fed me not. I was sick, and you visited me not. I was thirsty, and you gave me not to drink. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and go into, the, into a place prepared for those like you. And I ad-libbed that last part. But then he comes to those that he receives, and he says, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I, I was... Um, Sick and you came and visited me. In other words, you gave something to me. I got my finger right on that first. I'm not going to let go of it. We look at the word faith, for instance, and we say faith without works is not really faith at all. Ready? Prayer without actions really isn't prayer. You can pray until the cows come home, and you can fast, but unless you do the fast the way that God has called you to fast, you're not going to reap any benefit. 
I've heard people say, well, fast that's, that's done just to fast is just a hunger strike. That you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Now notice what he says in the next verse, verse 8. If you fast this way, if you become a service-based church or a service-based individual, don't stop praying, don't stop fasting, but fast the way that I want you to. This is the result you'll have. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away thy yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness. Notice verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be like the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Ah, it's interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting concept. It goes back to something I talked about a few weeks ago when I talked about the three levels of care. I've been really, in the last few weeks, been reading a lot on grief counseling. And it's really been enlightening because I've, I've been instructed one way growing up and now I'm beginning to realize that how many people in even this room have unsolved, have not reconciled with grief. That could be divorce, that could be a death, it could be a change in life. Because they don't know how to cope with it. And because we're so smart, we try to tell people to hide themselves from coping with grief. Oh, it'll, it'll get better with time. Or like my dad would say, big boys don't cry. Or like dad said, if you don't stop crying. Yeah. So what did we teach our children? Not to deal with grief. Not to deal with loss. So going back a step, three levels of care. Sympathy. Everybody has sympathy in here. You'll drive home on your way to Thunder Bay and you'll see a guy broke down on the side of the road and you'll say, boy, I feel sorry for him. It's raining outside. Poor guy. That's sympathy. Doesn't do him much good. Or you'll drive by the same guy and you'll say, Oh, look at that guy. He's out there in the rain. He doesn't have a jack. He's got a convertible without a top. He's soaking wet. Oh, I remember I had that happen to me one time. I relate to his pain. That's empathy. 
But the third guy is like the Samaritan. He's driving down the road. And he says, honey, look, that guy's broke down. He needs help. I've got to stop and help him change his tire. Which one showed compassion? Which one was the neighbor? The one that inconveniences himself. You know why sometimes we don't do that? And I'm not trying to chastise. I've done it myself. Because we're afraid of being hurt. I used to pick up hitchhikers. I dare not pick them up anymore. I even hitchhiked when I was a kid. That's how I got around when I lost my license. I hitchhiked everywhere and rode my bicycle. And people back then would pick you up. But not anymore. Because they're afraid of becoming hurt or taken advantage of. So because our world is changing, and you can't trust people like you used to trust them, you withdraw and give nothing. I'm not saying you you do nothing, but you withhold something. So I'm going to leave you with a question. By the way, when I make references to my dad, I had the most awesome dad. That was the way he was raised that way. It wasn't that he was mean. That was the way dad's father was. I never met my grandfather, but I'm sure he just raised dad, and dad raised me like he was raised. But I remember in the book I'm reading, we're doing a grief line. And part of the assignments is to find areas from your birth all the way through your current day of traumatic experiences or things that you remember in your life. And you really need to do this with two people, but some people are so withdrawn that they don't want anybody to be involved, so they try to teach you to do it yourself. So I sat and I said, well, most people remember things about from five years of age and up. Some can go back further, but... So the first memory that I had, that I put on my timeline, and it's really stupid. I can't even believe I got this memory. But it left an impression on me that I guess I never got over. I'm on the corner of Richard Road and Allen Road and Randy Road in Oak Creek. I'm about seven. And I don't have any friends to play with, so I'm sitting on the corner playing with the gravel making little mounds, who knows what I was doing, maybe making a castle of gravel, who knows. And my dad drove home from work, and he stopped by me, and he rolled his window down, and he said, what in the world are you doing? Grow up, you're not a baby. I remember that. And I felt like my dad, I had my dad's disapproval. And we would just tell our kids, suck it up, get over it, Sally. You know, it's go on with your life. But it left an impression on me because I felt rejected by my father at seven years old. 
So when I, I come to church, I need to understand everything that I say from the pulpit, everything, every instruction that you get as you're taught from the Word of God has to be done in such a way that it builds you up and not tears you down and leaves a scar on your life. So I think the spoken Word, the anointed Word of God, provides correction, rebuke, and reproof, and edification in righteousness. God calls it the way it is, but he does it in a way that builds you up and wants you to strive for perfection. He says after this, if you will do as I'm telling you to do, and you'll inconvenience yourself and serve others and you'll feed the poor, well, how does that benefit our church? Okay, this is not a public service announcement. Is it six years that the food pantry's been open? Probably about five or six years now. It's changed my perspective on things. The other day, let me give you an example. I'm at, the, I'm at the food pantry and Dave and Barb and some others are there. And this lady comes in and she's probably 29 years old. Uh, she's a registered nurse. And as I take her groceries out to load her car, she starts to talk to me and she said, you really don't know how much this means to me. I just moved here from Colorado and I haven't found a job. Oh, I'll find a job, she said. I'm sure I'll find a job. But right now, I don't have any food in my house. And this is going to help me until I start a new job. Now, that's just one. And stories about a guy that came in that he hurt his back. He couldn't work anymore. He was so discouraged and disgusted and he said, I want to work, but with my back, I can't do it anymore. And then you fill their car with them, and you load it in their car, and you send them off on your way. And you know what you feel like? You feel like you're, you're doing something that God wants you to do. Well, what am I getting from it? Well, what did the Samaritan get? Where did God say that you need to receive anything for, your, for that labor? He said, just do it. I'm not saying that a workman isn't entitled to some compensation, but if that's the reason that you're doing it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And so I'll close with this. What in the world are you doing? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you to grow up and be mean, but evaluate. Which fast are you involved in? Which type of prayer are you involved in? Are, are you involved in the prayer that you pray but you don't do anything with your prayers? Or do you pray and then say, God, show me the ones that I can minister to after I get up off my knees? If we as a church ever lose that form of outreach, it doesn't matter what sort of a program we get and how we dress our building up or do anything. But if we ever miss the solid background of truth that comes through ministry and service, whatever we will do will just be empty and void. Let's stand together. <laughs> Here's
Here's one of those songs, Sister Missy. There's a joy in giving. Remember that song? How old is it? There's a joy in giving, and I found it to be true. The more you give to Jesus, the more he's going to give to you. I'm really off key. So give to the more, so give more than you can afford. Do you, does anybody remember that song? That shows you how old I was. I think Shem taught that to Abraham. <laughs> but there is. There's a joy in giving. So give to you can't give anymore. Give more than you can afford, and you'll find your couple overfull because you just can't outgive the Lord. Um, Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this, this part of our service, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit, that quickening spirit, that spirit of compassion and love and charity, that spirit of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.